All right. You can go ahead and wrap those conversations up. Maybe that was very uh, empowering to you to talk about a time in your life where you held power. I'm not sure how long ago that was for you. Uh, obviously, you remember it based on the conversation you just had. Uh, and Jeannie's right. Over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is spend the month of October looking at politics through a different filter. This is a time of year where uh, things get heated and things get intense when it comes to our political landscape. And what tends to happen lots of times is that when Christians open their mouth about politics, uh, it can be a disaster. And so instead of opening our mouths about our political opinions, our political views, we're going to open God's Word together and look at God's heart on issues that seem to continue to be talked about over thousands and thousands of years. And that God had something to say about long before we ever came up with the concept of electoral college. We're going to look at, for the next couple of weeks, things that really matter, not just in a voting booth, not just every four years, but every day of our life. And we're going to make choices together that not only affect how we walk into this political season, but more importantly, how we walk into our work tomorrow, how we walk back into our homes this afternoon. See, so often, lots of times when Christians tend to come at politics and that sort of thing, or the church does, they tend to look at their faith through the lens or the filter of politics. What we're going to do is actually look at God's Word together. We'll get two specific passages today that will actually help us look at our politics through a lens of faith so that we can see more clearly and follow God more faithfully and be more transformed in the process, whatever happens politically around us. Sound good? So today we're talking about power. Power is at the core of politics. It is both the petrol and poison of politics. Came up with that sentence myself. It is what fuels politics and what can destroy it. Power is always at the center of any political conversation or any political movement. It is all about power. And just a second ago, we talked about the first time you had a real taste of power. I remember when it was for me. Uh, it was, in our high school, we did student body elections, and so you could elect people. Did anyone do any, hold any student body office at your school, high school or middle school? All right, so the four of us geeks that did that, that's fantastic. <laughs> We're the future leaders of America. So uh, at, our, at our high school, I, 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 you know, I looked at the job of president, of school president, and while that's prestigious, it looked so boring to me. And it looked like a lot of responsibility without a lot of fun. I didn't have time for that in high school. And so what my best friend and I looked at was, we looked at, there was a position at our high school called uh, social chairman. Now, I didn't grow up in the 50s, okay, uh, with the title like social chairman, but I did go to a Christian school, so it felt like it was the 50s. And so you, the social chairman was responsible to plan the social activities of our whole school, which included such things as, but not limited to, uh, the all-night party, uh, the turkey bowl uh, flag football competition. And that's about it. That's really all you had to do to be social chairman. And so we said, let's do it. That sounds like a ton of fun, and we can have a lot of fun and do things differently. And so we decided to put our campaign together. And we're both kind of creative you know, guys, so we said one of the things we want to do is we wanted to put a poster uh, in every bathroom stall. And so we went in, and every back of every door of every bathroom stall, we put a big poster that said, don't just sit there. Get up and vote for Shad and Jarrett. 
And we thought, that's so clever. Like, this was viral before things could go viral. Like, we were so proud of ourselves and so creative until the next day when we got called into the principal's office. <laughs> and so we sat there and had to explain to him, you know, kind of our strategy behind why we went that route and more specifically uh, why we were in the girls' bathroom, uh, putting those in there. And, and so as powerful as we thought we were, when we sat in that room with the principal, we knew in that room who had the power. It was really clear. He had the power in that room. No matter how powerful we thought we were, we knew that he had the power in that room. And in just about any room that you and I go into, we can tell pretty quickly who's got the power. You walk into just about any social setting or environment, you can discern pretty quickly, if you spend a little bit of time watching and pay attention, listening, who actually has the power in that room. I want you to think about your work, where you work. I want you to think about who has the power in that room. And maybe your boss, lots of times it's not. It's another employee that kind of has sway or has influence over the other employees. Maybe a really negative person, but they just tend to share their negativity a lot, and so that kind of has a power over the office. Maybe you work for yourself, so that's an easy answer right there. It's you, hopefully. But you can tell when you walk into a work setting pretty quickly who's got the power. You just pay attention, and you can tell. You know, in just about uh, every marriage, you can tell there's one person who has more power. Now, I know, it's early, and those of you who are married are feeling very uncomfortable at this moment. But the truth is this. No matter how you come at your marriage, if you're a parent, no matter how you come at your parenting, the truth is that if we were to sit down and spend a lunch together, I could probably discern over the course of that time who has just a little bit more power in that marriage. And you may be elbowing your spouse right now, reminding them that it's you that has the power. That's fine. Just about every room, you can tell pretty quickly who's got the power. This summer, Gene and I had the privilege and opportunity to go and tell the story of this church, to represent our church at the White House. It's a really cool invitation that we shared with our church over the course of the summer. So somehow we got invited with a small handful of people from other different faith-based initiatives that were doing good things in the neighborhood at a local level. So we got to go and be a part of this group and tell the story of you, tell the story of what God has done through our church here at Soul City. It was a huge privilege, huge honor. But it was amazing to watch who was trying to have the power in the room during that time. And no matter who of us among the organizations that were there maybe thought we had more power, I assume they had more power, or they might have, there was a moment when everything got real quiet because senior advisor to President Obama, Valerie Jarrett, came in to speak. And this is a pretty high-up official in the White House. And so we were going about our little presentations, doing our thing, but then everything stopped because she walked in the room. And I knew that in an instant that she had the power. I could just tell, mostly because there was a Secret Service man with a gun next to her. So I figured <laughs> she probably has more power than I do. And she shared for just a few minutes, three or four minutes, thanked us for what we were doing, turned around and walked out the door, and I don't think she ever thought about us again. But in three minutes, you could tell that person has power. It's amazing to be in one of the most powerful rooms in our nation. Someone always has the power in the room. This uh, last week, our son turned seven, and so we went to Elijah's school to do a little birthday reading with him in his class, to play some games. He can't bring snacks now, so we just drank water and celebrated, and so, <laughs> so you know, cheers. And so, what's amazing is his little first grade class, there's already someone who has the power in that class. And you can tell, it's not him, but he comes home every day telling me about her. 
and what she did on the playground that day and how she made everyone do this and they all had to play this game and they're all this or they're all that. You remember, I mean, just about every room you walk into, someone is always going to have the power. And so the question for us to consider as we dive into God's word together this morning is what would you do if you had the power in your room? So at your work, what would you do differently if you had the power? I'm sure you've thought about it. I'm sure you've shared your ideas with the other people around work. Maybe you've even shared them to your boss. This is what I would do if I had the power in this room. I would do things differently. And in your mind, I would do them right. What would you do if you had power in your family, in your marriage? What would be different if you knew that you were the one that had the power? Or in your, among your siblings, you know? If you knew that you were the one that had the power in that room, among your friends, those that you hang out with? What would you do if you had the power in that room? And the question that's very important for us to consider is, what would you do to get that power? See, these two questions are at the heart of politics and of political tension. What would you do if you had the power, and what would you be willing to do to get the power? This is why we have elections. This is why we have all kind of our political structure comes down basically to those two questions. They're the root questions of politics. And what we're going to look at this weekend is really what God's path is to power and how you and I can actually have the most power in the room and what God invites us to do with it. We're going to look at God's path to how you and I become the most powerful people in the room and what it is that we do with it once we have that power. But to understand that path, I want to give us a little context for our current political um, place that we find ourselves as a country right now. Our, Our country has been defined by a struggle for, a pursuit of, a loss of, a redefinition of power. And it continues as you kind of look back at the story of our little experiment in democracy, it really all comes down to, right at the center of it all, certainly not the only thing, but right at the center of it all, is this, this quest, the struggle for power. So we're going to do a little like American History 101. We're going to go back to high school, okay? So maybe you passed this class, maybe you didn't, you might want to take notes, I don't know. But let's look at our journey of power and what brought us here, and maybe just maybe how God is inviting us into a different path. Now, you know the story of our country started with a group of immigrants who left Europe because there was an oppressive what? Power. Okay, let me just, I want to thank you, because I want to help you, I'm going to give you the answer to this quiz right now. Every time I stop, the word's going to be power. So I just want you to, I mean, it's what, so I just want you to know, okay? So we were under an oppressive power, and there was a lack of among other things, religious freedom and freedom to sort of express ourselves the way we wanted to. So a bunch of people in the 1600s left Europe and came here to this country where there was already a group of people that were kind of doing just fine on their own. But then we came here and made this our home to escape a power that had gotten out of control. Now, what we didn't realize is that we didn't really clean up all of our loose ends and we still owed mom and dad some rent money. And so what we had to do is break our ties with England. And so early on in our country, we had to fight a battle for our independence. Anyone want to guess a year? No, the word's not power here. Anyone want to guess a year, like, around what time that was? American history. Wow, I would expect it a little bit more. When? 1776. Good. That you were, just say, yeah, that's what I was going to say. 
Good. Right around that time is when we declared our independence and had to fight a revolutionary war. We had to fight off our ties to England, who still was trying to exercise their what over us? Power over us. And so we establish ourselves as a country. What's amazing is I've gone through to prepare for this series that we're looking at this month, read back through our Constitution, read through our Declaration of Independence. If you go through and read them, you will find that there is an amazing amount of language around power. But most specifically, it's around limiting power, where power actually comes from, how it's given, and how it's controlled. We have set up our democracy, our little experiment in democracy is set up on a three-legged stool, a balance of what? Power. Again, power. It's going to be that way the whole way through. Power. So that one person doesn't end up abusing power. So that's kind of where our, our story started. Then early on into our little experiment in democracy, we realized that there were differing values in our country. And so we had to fight a civil war as a country, all about power and what people's worth was. And d- depending on where you're from, we won. And so, um, <laughs> and so we continued, we fought that and continued to establish ourselves and what we would do with the power that had been entrusted to us, all the while growing as a nation. In fact, in our history, we were brought into a world war. In fact, two world wars back to back in which we were on the winning side. And that established us in the world as a super power. Now America had presence, had standing, had girth, had weight, had authority, had power in the world. And we had a good run there for like 20 years. And then some things began to turn. Our nation began exercising its power differently and began to walk down a different path of power than what had led us to our greatness. There were a couple of unclear, if not unjust wars, There were some decisions of presidential misconduct which led to national mistrust, which began to erode and undermine our gift of power to our leaders. And what happens then over the course of the last 30, 40 years is not only an erosion, but almost an abandonment of trust in power. So much so today that most people you talk to, when it comes to politics and politicians and which party they vote for or which one they don't vote for, there is a tremendous amount of cynicism and skepticism when it comes to power. It's as though power in itself, in and of itself, is bad and can't be trusted. That's why this becomes so heated, and that's why it gets so cloudy as to what we're really supposed to be talking about around election time, because there has been such an abuse of and now a lack, thank you, an abuse of, I was just catching my breath, an abuse of power... (laughs) Thank you. And a lack of trust in our leaders and authorities and those that have been entrusted with power. And we can point our fingers and say, yep, those politicians, they just want power and this is what they want to do with it. And that's not what I would do if I were the most powerful person in the room. But listen, that quest for, that desire of, that pursuit of power is not a political thing. It's a human thing. Every one of us faces, at some level, in every aspect of our life, that desire for power, to be in control, to have our way, to do what we would do if we were the most powerful person in the room. And here's the thing when it comes to power, as we'll see here in this text. It's not a bad thing. In fact, power actually is a gift 
from God. But it comes with very clear operating instructions. So what I'd love for us to do is to turn in the Bible and look at that right now. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. You can go ahead and grab a blue Bible if you would. Matthew chapter 20. It's on page 690 in the Blue Bibles, page 690 in the Blue Bibles. We're going to look at, I'm going to give you a little context to the text that we're about to read. We're going to look at a passage in the Bible where Jesus demonstrates and talks about real power, where he talks about what it really looks like and teaches us on it. And then we're going to look at another passage where he actually models it. Let me give you a little context here. The disciples were still convinced at that point in Jesus' ministry, coming towards the end of his three-year public ministry, At the beginning of his ministry, he called disciples to follow him. They did. There were about 12 that followed. Well, there were 12 that followed him, about 50 more that were with him just about everywhere. And then there was always a mass or a crowd of people that were following around Jesus. But those followers who were closest to him still thought that what Jesus had come to establish was a political power. Because, see, the life that they were in at that time, we have to try and understand, was the context of empire. All around them was empire, was political power. So not only sort of was was Jerusalem and and Israel sort of had its established systems of power and authority, they were being ruled over by Rome, the most powerful empire in the world at that point. So you have Caesars and emperors and you have all this sort of language of power that's being thrown around and is a part of their everyday experience. So they were convinced that Jesus had come to establish a political what? Power. Good. And so... Two of them began arguing. Brothers, it's always brothers, began arguing about who should be able to sit next to Jesus when he comes into his power. When Jesus takes over and overthrows Rome, who's going to be the one sitting right next to him? Who's going to be in all the photos? And so they began having this conversation. The other disciples began to hear about it and were not happy. This is Matthew 20, verse 24. When the 10 heard about this, They were indignant with the two brothers. Now, let me explain to you why. They weren't indignant out of a sense of of holy righteousness or, thank you, or of some sort of, you know, like, you guys shouldn't be having that conversation. They were mad because they wanted the what? Power. They wanted the power. So they're indignant. Jesus called them together and said this. Okay, guys, look. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, what's the word there? It's not power. Lord it over them. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, now the Gentiles were sort of everyone else in the world at that point. You know that the, Lord, the, the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. So what Jesus is saying is, look, you know how it works in this world. You get power, and then you use power towards your own end and towards your own means. He says, you know how they do it. What I want you to do is underline these next four words. Please, underline them in the Bible you're reading. It doesn't matter because someone else may come along and read these words. It may very much help them in the time they need to read them. Look at these next four words. Not so with you. I want us to actually say that out loud together. Not so with you. You know how the world exercises power. You know how they go after it and what they do with it once they get it. Not so with you you. It's as though Jesus is saying, look, you understand the kingdom of this earth. I'm inviting you into a different kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, where we value and look at power 
differently. You know how the world does it. Not so with you. Instead, Jesus says, whoever wants to become what? Great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be what? First must be your, strong word here, slave. Jesus is making a very extreme point that whoever wants to be great actually takes the lowest position. Whoever wants to be first takes a step back and lets others go ahead of them. Jesus says, look, that's what real greatness is. That's what real power is. Because look what he says, just as the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what Jesus is saying here? You know how the world does it, not so with you. I'm inviting you into an upside-down kingdom where the first are last and the greatest are the least. And Jesus says, if you're ever unclear about that, look at me. If you're ever unclear on what that looks like or to what lengths you should do that or what's the end of that sort of position of power, he says, look at me. Look at my life. Look at who I am. Look at what I do. God is not afraid of power. And power is not bad. He just radically redefines it and uses it redemptively in this world. That's what power is for. It's as though what Jesus is basically saying here is that real power comes from regularly giving power away. Real power, real power, not of this world. Real power comes from you regularly giving power away. You regularly getting behind others and pushing them forward. You regularly coming around those who are in need. You regularly having, putting in effort, putting in, and then not taking the credit, not needing to take the credit. Real power, real power comes from regularly giving power away. And I saw this firsthand at the last church that Gene and I worked at. We worked at a church down in Atlanta called North Point Community Church. Great church. Kind of a you know successful big church. I like get it done. It's done. It does really well. Like it's it's. I think there's eight hundred thousand people that go there. I mean it's just a lot. No, that's a joke. There's not that many people that, that go there. It's like five hundred thousand. But no, the great church doing really really well. Uh, honored and privileged that I would have the chance to to work on that team. And what I began to find is as we got to know them over the course of the years before we went down to work there's, I saw how hard they worked, how well they worked, and yet how humble they were. And so when I, when I joined the team, I was amazed to find among the staff and the folks that, that worked there, again, it's a, it's a big church, lots of different locations, and doing lots of big, redemptive work in the world. As I got to know the staff more, I began to see that there's, there was like a lack of rock stars among that team. No, no one was there trying to take credit. They were doing big things, and still do. They're doing big things, and yet no one is out front taking credit for that. It was disarming at first. In fact, I remember when we would do Monday morning staff meetings. We gather the whole staff together. So this is like a couple hundred people. Sit in a room like this, and we'd tell stories of what had happened that Sunday, the day before, and throughout the course of that week leading up to it. And I remember the first couple staff meetings, 
people would come up to the mic, you know, and, and I'm expecting big reports because this church did big, big things. And so people would come up to the mic and go, hey, you know, I just want to let you know I was in the kids area, our kids ministry area today, and I noticed there was a new volunteer that hadn't ever served before, and so they were kind of nervous, and they didn't know what to do. And I noticed that Jenny, I watched her walk right over to that volunteer and make them feel so welcome and kind of walk them through the first couple steps of how to get involved and help them kind of get over some of those nerves about having their first serve. And I just was so proud to be on a team with Jenny. And everyone go, oh, Jenny, thanks, Jenny. I'm like, wow, that's, that's amazing. That must be an anomaly. Next guy gets up. Hey, I want to let you know, I was at our high school ministry this last Sunday night. You know, it's not even part of my job. I just wanted to go there and support them however I could. And boy, Clay taught that night, and he just did such a fantastic job. You guys, he taught God's Word so faithfully. And I'm so proud to be on a team that values students and teaches God's Word that well. I'm so proud to be on a team with Clay. Oh, Clay! And everyone would clap, and I'm like, y'all are drinking the Kool-Aid. Like, what (laughs) is going on around here? It was so disarming for me to be in a room full of people who were very powerful, very talented, very competent, and yet didn't need to take the credit. In fact, what they would rather do is push power towards other people. It's as though they understood what Jesus is teaching us, that real power comes from regularly giving power away. That my power is not an end to myself to serve my own needs and agenda. My power is actually a gift from God meant to be given to others. Real power comes from giving, regularly giving power away. In God's politics, power is not evil, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. It's an invitation for you and I to choose to serve someone other than ourselves. The the, the all-powerful God of the universe, this God who created everything, one of the words we have for God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. As our kids say in our house, God has all the power. God has all the power. This same God chose to demonstrate his power for us by coming to be with us and to give his life for us. That's power. The God who could have come and said, I'm here. I'm here, everybody. It's time. Bring on the praise. Bring on the crowns. And people would have, as they should have. And in fact, that's what the Bible talks about for what we will do in heaven. Part of it is praising and praising and worshiping God. Jesus could have come to earth and do that, but he said, no, 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 no. No, I want to demonstrate to you what real power is, not of this world, not so with you. I want to show you by giving you my life and my power so that you may know God. This isn't just something Jesus taught. He modeled it to the extreme. So what I want you to do is turn your Bibles to John 13. We're going to jump a couple pages to the right, page 751 in the Blue Bibles. I want us to look at how Jesus actually demonstrated this kind of giving away of his power. John 13, page 751. Context here. Jesus is now hours away from his arrest and a mock trial. 
cross is literally on the horizon. He knows where his life is going and where his power will be made known. And so what he says to those followers, those ones like us who continue to fumble and fail and not quite get it right, he says, I want us to share one more meal together. And so he gave his disciples instructions. I want you to go to this house. I want you to get this upper room. I want you to go and prepare a place. I'll be there in a bit. Just go get everything set. And in that custom, it was very customary because they didn't have paved roads or potholed roads like us here in Chicago. They had dirt roads, a lot of dust, a lot of dirt everywhere. This was very, very, very common. In fact, it was expected that at the door of any sort of great meal or home that party that people were having, there would be a servant stationed right at the door, just inside the door. And that servant's sole job was to wash the feet and sometimes the hands of those who were walking in. It was a way to say, one, you're welcome here, but also we, you know, we kind of prepared a place for you here. And so they would have their, and it was not weird. It was very normal, in fact. And so you can imagine as the disciples sort of set everything up and got everything ready for this last meal that Jesus had obviously put some importance on, what it must have felt like for them when he walked in and they realized that there was no servant at the door. And you can imagine maybe the frustration or the rationalization like, well, who didn't get, why didn't, did you, didn't, are you, I didn't get a servant, did you get a servant? I told Peter to get the servant, I didn't, Peter didn't get the service, Judas, I told Judas, where's Judas? Like you can imagine people kind of feeling the frustration, the disciples feeling the frustration of what have we done? We've, we, we, we missed one of the most important, obvious details. And so Jesus comes in, walks past where a servant should be, takes his seat and begins to have this last meal with his disciples. And about halfway through the meal is where our text picks up. This is John 13, verse 4. Look what Jesus does. Look how he demonstrates real power. So he, being Jesus, got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing. Now let me just tell you just a little word because it's not familiar in our context. Jesus was a rabbi. He held the highest uh, position of sort of authority uh, in his community, the highest teacher. He was a teacher, a religious teacher. His followers were literally, they, they followed him as their rabbi. And rabbis were known for wearing their robes. Their robes kind of let you know who they were in the community. They were sometimes greatly decorated, but you'd be able to tell from a distance that this was a rabbi by their robe, and then immediately the followers or disciples that were behind them. So Jesus takes off his robe, his authority, the thing that so clearly marked his power in the community. He took that off. He set that aside. And he grabbed a towel, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And the text says after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that had been wrapped around him. Now, you imagine their shock over realizing they'd forgotten to get a servant now what that must have felt like, how disarming that must have felt like, if not alarming, to have Jesus now washing their feet, to take the lowest position in the room. And so Jesus is making his way around the table. And you got to love Peter. He voices what everyone else is thinking and feeling. Peter kind of sees Jesus coming, and he asks this question, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And if I'm Jesus, I'm like, yeah, do you see I'm kind of making my way around? You're next. <laughs> James, John, Peter, like, yes, I'm going to. But what he's really asking here is, 
You're not going to seriously do this, are you? I can't let you do this. And look what Jesus says. You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later, later, you will. You'll understand. Peter's boldness. No, said Peter. You will never wash my feet. I cannot let you take that position. It was scandalous. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You, if you are going to be my follower, you have to get this. You have to understand this. So let's jump down to verse 12. When he finished washing their feet, Jesus put his authority back on, his robe, his clothes back on, and returned to his place. And look what he says. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher, which is rabbi. You call me rabbi. I have spiritual authority. And you call me Lord, which means I, you recognize my divine authority. So not only my earthly religious spiritual authority, you recognize me as Lord, as spiritual authority. And Jesus says this, rightly so. Please underline that. Jesus is not afraid of power. He does not back off and go, you call me that, but you know, guys, I don't know, it's just him through me, it's him through me. I can't, you know, take that, you know. It's a- no! He says, rightly so. I am your master. I am your rabbi. I am your Lord. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. This is the back half of the not-so-with-you sentence. You've seen how this world does power. Not so with you. This is how. You take a towel, you get on your knees, and you serve. You want to be great? You take the lowest position. You want to be remembered? You push others in front of yourself. Jesus says, if, if, you, if you want to be my follower, you're serious about this, you must also do this. Moving on, Jesus says, I've set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. He could not be more clear. I want you to do this very truly. This is very true. You can count on this. I tell you, servants aren't greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. Just pause on that. What's Jesus saying here? He's affirming that there is a power structure. He's saying, look, you, the servants, are not greater than me. You, the learners, are not greater than me, the teacher. If you agree to Jesus as your Lord, then you have already said, I am not greater than you. You are greater than me. So if he's saying, look, if I have done this, you to choose to not do this is for you to declare that you actually have more authority than Jesus or that you have a better way. If learners aren't better than their teachers and servants aren't greater than their masters and the master has already lowered himself to be a servant, to not do so, It's to claim that you have more authority, different authority, or different power than Jesus himself. Jesus finished with this promise. Now, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you understand how things work in God's politics, what real power is, you will be blessed if you do them you will find more joy in taking less credit. You will find more meaning in coming alongside of and helping others. You will find a greater purpose when you are not the sole end of your life and your agenda. 
You do this, Jesus says. You model after me. and You will be blessed. You will have power. You, in fact, will be the most powerful person in the room because you're giving God's power away. When was the last time anyone ever accused you of being too selfless? When was the last time at work that your boss said, I, come on, I need, you to, I need to talk to you. You are encouraging people way too much around here. And you're helping people way too much and not taking credit for it. It's got to stop. Has that ever, ever happened to you? When was the last time for those of us who were married that you and your spouse got into a fight over who could do the dishes first? Probably hasn't happened. Or you got into a fight because you insist on making the bed her way. Probably hasn't happened. What would it look like for you to be the most powerful person in the room by giving that power away? By choosing to be a servant. Not to serve yourself, but to serve others. Just as Christ Jesus has modeled for us. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to spend a moment actually remembering and celebrating the significance of how real that is. But as they do, can you grab, there's a little election, little ballot for you. I want you to grab. You're probably sitting on it. And what's great about this is you don't have to register to vote here. You get to vote right now. And it's a simple choice, really. The question is this. This week, who are you going to vote to serve? And we made it really obvious for you. Serve myself <laughs> or serve others. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a hint. The bottom one's probably the better one. And so we're going to ask seriously everyone to take out a pen right now and to actually vote. And we've even created some space that says, God, this week. And the reason we did that is because we wanted you to have the opportunity to say, God, this week at work, here's how I'm going to do it and here's who I'm going to serve. Be that specific. I mean it. Grab a pen. We've got a little bit of time. We, like, we planned this, so we're not surprised by this. So we'd, We want to give you a little bit of time. Say, God, if I truly am choosing to serve, then who's it going to be? How's it going to be? Maybe it may be your spouse. One of the greatest gifts you can give to your spouse is to say, I want to outserve you. I want to beat you to the punch when it comes to serving. I want you to be amazed and overwhelmed at the joy I get from serving you. Maybe it's at work. There's someone in your office who maybe God's put on your heart And it's an invitation to be the most powerful person at your work by giving power to that person, encouraging them this week, thanking them this week, just having lunch with them this week. You have no idea how far that goes. What would it look like for you this week to vote to serve others? One of the beautiful things about our democracy is that we have appointed times every two years, every four years, every six years, or every couple months in Chicago where we get to vote an elected official in. And that's wonderful, and it's a beautiful framework for a country, but God's not waiting another four years for this one. He's inviting you today to choose who you will serve, how you'll serve them, and how you will keep in the footsteps of your master and teacher and Lord Jesus. You know, the text goes on to tell us, John 13, that Jesus gathered his disciples around that table 
before the meal was over, he wanted them to understand again just how significant his power would be. And so he took bread and he said, this, this, this bread is like a, a symbol of my body broken for you. So I, want, I want you to remember, I, <laughs> the God of the universe, all-powerful, almighty God came and took the form of one of us and offered his life for us. This bread is a reminder. God physically came. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood. It's the only perfect, pure, sinless blood to ever flow through human veins. And I'm going to pour this blood out to cover the weight and the debt of your sin once and for all. He said, every time you drink this cup, I want you to remember that I gave my life for you willingly, joyfully. I demonstrated my power by humbling myself to death, even death on a cross. And so we have a moment right now to literally, tangibly take part of something Jesus initiated, to remember his body and his blood through communion, to consider that power that was made available to every one of us today. In fact, for some of us, it may be starting today. When you consider the lengths that God has gone to extend himself to you and to pour out his power to you through relationship with Jesus Christ, today may be the day as you come forward to take communion, receive this, that you go, I'm in. If God would humble himself to that place to take the form of a servant, then what else can I do but respond to God with my life? And maybe today is the day that you start a relationship with that God who redefined power in this world and demonstrated it to us through his death and resurrection. So I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, we have some stations set up here for you to come and receive communion. You just break the bread off, you dip it in the cup. But we're so serious about people having this experience with God that uh, we have over here to the left, gluten-free bread. So if, that, if you need that, guess what? Like we've got it covered, okay? So you can come over here for that. We don't want anyone to miss out on this experience. But what I'd love for us to do right now is to pray and to consider this God who has made himself so available to us through Jesus and demonstrated his power so beautifully. Let's pray together right now. Jesus, our Messiah, we thank you that you are the one who has come. You are the one who has demonstrated your power to us, for us. And now you want to actually pour your power out through us. Thank you. Thank you that you humbled yourself to death, even death on a cross. So if you are our Lord and our Savior and our Master and our Teacher, God, then we should do likewise. You've invited us to do likewise, to be a part of an upside-down kingdom that looks at power, not as something evil or that can't be trusted, but as a gift from you to be leveraged in the lives of others around us, God. That's your invitation to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you not only taught it, you modeled it, and now you've invited us into it. We choose to remember and follow you right now in this moment, this day, and throughout this week. In your name, Jesus, our Messiah and Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen.